Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, December 7th, we're studying Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Isaiah uses the same imagery we've already seen from Jeremiah during this season of Advent. And the fifth evangelist now paints an even more vivid picture for us, a picture of the reign of the king who comes from the stump of Jesse. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us a returning guest, Pastor Sam Belts. Pastor Belts serves at St. John Lutheran Church in Oskaloosa, Iowa. Pastor Belts, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thanks, Sam. It's good to be here. So let's talk context. We've heard a little bit from Isaiah already in this series. Isaiah 11 comes up in series A, the reading, the Old Testament reading for the second Sunday in Advent. And we've kind of jumped around Isaiah. We've been in Isaiah 2, we've been in Isaiah 64. Today we're in Isaiah 11. Help us get our bearings in this long prophetic book. What's going on with Isaiah's ministry as we gear up for chapter 11 today? Yeah, right. So that's a really great question about what is going on in Isaiah's ministry because the early portions of Isaiah do bounce around quite significantly. Uh, if you read it chronologically, it would almost be like Isaiah has been prophesying and receiving visions and oracles from the Lord before he's even commissioned to do so, as his call scene is not even until chapter 6. So there are questions about the chronological layout of the at least first few chapters of the book of Isaiah, whether they do follow a chronological order, you know, that Isaiah was working as a prophet before he was actually ordained as a prophet. I don't think I subscribe to that uh to that idea of Isaiah's ministry. But when you have what you have going on uh, for these first few chapters here, when we, before we get to Isaiah 11 is you have uh, God uh, pointing out to the people of Israel that their lives are going to be turned upside down for a lot of different reasons. Uh, the main reason is Israel's unfaithfulness, Judah's unfaithfulness. The fact that they have been, uh, whoring around, according to the prophet, with other gods, introducing false pagan worship into the life of Israel. The kings have been unfaithful and are marrying with other nations' wives and playing political games and uh, using the leverage that royalty often uses to leverage worldly success and worldly uh, insight and wisdom, worldly gain over and against the faithfulness that God has commanded of his people coming out of the times of Deuteronomy, you know, uh, after Israel was handed over to the promised land under the auspices of their faithfulness, uh, with, uh, with Moses leading the way in Deuteronomy, uh, with Joshua introducing them and then, uh, you know, giving the land over to the people now, not too far removed from their inheritance of this land. When you think about how much time they spent in Egypt and in the wilderness wandering in comparison, where. Uh, decades and centuries removed from their inheritance now of the promised land in the time of David and the kingdom of David and the expansion under Solomon. And now they're having all this torn away from them, right? They're in the process, depending on when you want to uh, actually date the time of Assyria's introduction into the scene in Israel, they're in the process or at the very cusp of starting to have their lifestyle ravaged, their homeland destroyed, their economy uh, uprooted, 
their homes taken out from them, their livelihoods taken away and carried off into captivity and uh, what would be Assyria and then Babylon. So, uh, yeah, it's a lot going on in the life of the people of Israel, to be sure. I have a little axiom that I use with my people here at St. John when I'm teaching uh, books from the prophets. And uh, the axiom is this. uh, It's always a bad time in Israel when a prophet starts speaking, right? It's always a bad time in Israel when a prophet opens up his mouth to say something on behalf of God. We don't have much prophetic voice from the good times, you know, of the people of Israel, right? Uh, Most everything that we're dealing with in the prophetic books is when Israel has succumbed to the sinfulness of pagan idol worship, and God is at work correcting them in some form or fashion, stripping them down to the studs and uh, getting ready to rebuild anew. And that, uh, I think, really sets a stage for where chapter 11 fits into some of these earlier chapters. If we wanted to take a look, a significant amount of these opening first chapters deal with the descriptors of the unfaithfulness of Judah, of the wickedness of Judah, of the people of Israel, of the issues with Ahaz, the king, and his unrighteousness, the fact that God commands him to ask for a sign, and Ahaz is like, I'm not asking for anything from God. Uh, You know, uh, there's some basic rules that we should follow as Christians and as God-fearing people. One of those rules is we should listen to somebody who was raised from the dead. That is generally good advice for Christians and people in general. If somebody has been raised from the dead and is now glorious and resurrected, that's a guy we should listen to, so we listen to Jesus. If God shows up on your front door and tells you to ask him for something, you ask him for something, right? Uh, this is a wisdom that was passed along to me by the great blockbuster movie, The Ghostbusters, right? If somebody ever asks you if you are a God, you say yes, right? Well, if somebody, if God shows up and asks you if you uh, it, to give you a sign, right? You, you, give, you tell me what you want me to show you, uh, and I'll make it happen. You give him what he wants, right? You always listen or answer to God, right? And all that sort of stuff. Uh, so you have all these really ridiculous, obs- uh, you know, astounding images of unfaithfulness and disobedience from the people of Israel, which shouldn't be astounding to us given the track record that Israel has, but are nevertheless, unbelief is always weird, right? Unbelief is always weird. It's strange in the way it manifests. And so here we have this from from Ahaz, the king. We see this uh, described by Isaiah early uh, in and often in his opening remarks. But then here, uh, along with a few other chapters that are in these introductory lines, you also have these gigantic messianic prophetic, uh, 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 what, are, what do I call them? Uh, bombs, right? These huge bombs that uh, live uh, still fully in the church's life, and especially during the season of Advent and Christmas, uh, these huge statements from the mouth of God through Isaiah about what God is going to be up through up to through a child, right? Uh, the Emmanuel child. Uh, you have also, uh, what else do I have here? The Messianic uh, Davidic king in, in chapter 9, and then ours, the root of Jesse, Right in chapter eleven, which we're going to talk about here a little bit more deeply in, in a little while, but uh, this this stuff is all woven together uh, in these first few verses, uh, juxtaposed to one another. The unrighteousness of the people, but the faithfulness of God, seem to be really highlighted in these first eleven chapters of Isaiah. So, yeah, the, give us a, a little bit more, just historically speaking, because we've been in the book of Jeremiah the last couple of 
shows here in this series just as the way that the series is laid out trying to follow the readings in the season of advent it doesn't always go chronologically and we're going to hear some of the same images that isaiah will preach but he preached before jeremiah we jeremiah i mean they oh there's so many overlap in terms of their themes but they have a slightly different historical context just give us a little bit you know jeremiah is coming right before the exile of judah Isaiah is coming, what, about over 100 years before that, and this being, oh, just over, yeah, just over 100 years before Jeremiah. What, what's his historical setting? He's in Judah. What's, what's happening more, historically speaking, there? So, historically speaking, the people of Israel, like I said, are just on the cusp of beginning to feel the oppression of the Assyrians. Uh, I think it's Sennacherib, right? Uh, I think is the Assyrian overlord at that time, if my history serves me right. Um, and he is mounting his kingdom, his empire into for invasion, not simply into Israel. Israel is just a blip on the screen. I think if I remember my history's right, Sennacherib and the Assyrians are interested in sweeping across uh, the the peninsula, or not the peninsula, but the Sinai, you know, the, that, that uh, the, what would be the eastern coast of the Mediterranean and sweeping down into Egypt and really occupying the trade routes of northern Egypt, right? So that's ultimately where Sennacherib wants to establish his empire, across the Red Sea into the Fertile Crescent, right? Or not the Fertile Crescent, into the Fertile Nile, right? Uh, the, uh, the regions of Alexandria and all those places near Cairo and everything. And so uh, Israel isn't the focus of the Assyrians by any means. Is, like Israel is nothing. Uh, it's just the all, along the way. But as part of God's great design and providence and plan, Israel is going to be wiped out and the people of Judah are going to be wiped out in the course of this whole invasion. And they're going to be that because they're on the way, right? Uh, There's no other way to get there for the Assyrians. Uh, The land route goes right through Israel's front door. And Jerusalem is, as many places are in in this time frame, it's a central city, even though it's not much of a city in the day and age that... uh, that Sennacherib and Isaiah are there, it's still a major city with all the accommodations of a major major city for that place in the world. Uh, So historically speaking, Assyria is getting ready to come in. But interestingly enough, right, uh, we know uh, historically speaking that Assyria is the first kingdom uh, or the first nation to come in, and then Babylon follows up. What's really interesting about uh, Isaiah is that Isaiah deals with both kingdoms, right? He's dealing with both entities here, even though uh, chronologically speaking, they're going to come at different times and sweep through, right? It wasn't Assyria that ended up destroying the temple in Jerusalem. It was Babylon years later, right? It wasn't Assyria that ended up destroying and crushing in fullness the whole of the people of God and carrying them away. It was in Babylon, right? It was this sort of staggered approach, though, that over the course of decades, this ended up uh, unfolding for the people, right? And so you're right in that Jeremiah is chronologically much later, and he deals with a different uh, a different phase of this captivity. But Isaiah's phase is uh, on the cutting, right, the spear's tip, right, the, the introduction of all of this calamity to the people when they still have the illusion that everything's going to be fine, right, when they still have the illusion that there's going to be absolutely nothing that goes on. That, uh, you know, this this only makes the signs that Isaiah is given with regards to salvation all the more bittersweet for the people of Israel. They're much easier to overlook, right? They seem ridiculous, right, uh, and completely absurd for the time that Israel's having, right? Yeah, things might not be the best, but 
you know, it's not the end of the world, right? Uh, let, let alone, uh, you know, the way we often think about things, right? Oh, yeah, things could be bad. The election could have gone better, whatever. It's not the end of the world. No, it's always the end of the world. That's the problem, right, as we consider it. And for Israel, that's it too, right? They should uh, consider that these signs are great and good signs, but as we are prone to doing, so they are prone to doing. They don't consider the weight of all this cosmic uh uh, turbulence that's going on presently and earthly turbulence that they're about to speak or uh, experience. And Isaiah is here prepping them. And I think, again, the preparation is twofold, right? So you see the the heavy word of warning for several chapters and verses in these first 11 chapters. But then I think what we're dealing with today is a word of comfort and promise for those who will remain faithful, right? So like we said, it's a 100-year process or more before this whole plan of God's chastisement of Israel is actually fully executed. Uh, and over the course of all of that time, uh, we could see God, and rightly so, as a wrathful God who is out to punish his children, which he definitely is doing that through the course of this. But at the same time, and on the other hand, he is also a long-suffering God who knows that there are those people within his kingdom and those people within his people who are interested in being faithful to him and are going to hold on to his promises even in the midst of darkness, right? Uh, which is which is really what we have in front of us today is a, is a significant promise that God is making, which is only given as good news to those who have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit and who can hold on to it in the midst of the trial and tribulation. So, yeah, I mean, as you talk about the the cosmic turbulence that was happening at that time, that's still happening in in our day. And the way the Lord puts this promise in the middle of all of it, the imagery is really striking. Just to, and this is this is right before what what we get for today. We start in, in eleven verse one, but in the previous chapter, the Lord is talking about the judgment that He will bring upon Assyria. It, you know, Isaiah right. doesn't only preach judgment against Judah and Israel; he's got judgment for lots of nations. And Assyria comes right before it. And in that imagery, I mean, the picture that I get in my mind is like the Lord sees a forest before him and he just lays it bare. All the trees are cut down. And, and that includes Assyria, includes all the nations, all the trees are cut down, but then there's this stump. And I guess the question is, well, which stump, you know, where, where is hope to be found when you're looking at how the Lord's judgment would lay waste over all sinners, which are in all nations, where is hope to be found? It's found in, in the stump of Jesse, which which I think gets us into the text. Any any more thoughts on, on immediate context, larger context before we jump into Isaiah 11? No, I think that's good. I mean, All right. God's going to wipe everything out and there's only going to be stumps left, right? But there's a shoot. There's a shoot. Right. All right. Isaiah 11 verses 1 through 10. Isaiah writes, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. 
The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. That's Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10. So, Pastor Belts, we get the picture. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. We've been in Jeremiah the last two studies, both talking about a righteous branch from David. Isaiah gives us a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Some overlapping images, but some nuance there that's in Isaiah that I think we need to pick up. What's what's Isaiah doing with this shoot from the stump of Jesse? Yeah, right. So again, it's important to notice uh, that, that as you pointed out, Tim, God is in the very previous chapter, right? He, uh, what we hear is he will cut down the thickets of the forest with an ax, right? So God is at work, as you pointed out, just leveling everything, right? One of the things that's tragic about this is that he's going to level Israel too, right? And he's going to level the, the history of Israel, its kingdom, right? Its monarchy, all the things that were the marker and supposed to be the markers of its people. And now we have this promise that he's going to resurrect a people out of this stump of Jesse. Now, this brings up a little Bible history for everybody. Who is this Jesse character? We know that Jesse is the father of David. Uh, who was Jesse's dad, right? Obi. Obi's Jesse's dad, Obed, right? And Obed comes from Boaz and Boaz and Ruth, right? And now we're into the whole history of God's salvation from the time of Joshua, Judges, Ruth, right? First and second Samuel bring us right into the Davidic lineage, right? From Saul and Saul's unfaithfulness and the taking of the spirit of Saul, which I think is an important component of this because a significant marker of the good ideal Davidic ruler is the spirit of the, of God, right? As, as Isaiah points out here, we'll probably need to talk about that a little bit, but uh, Jesse's stump, right? Uh, is actually this origin of the Davidic lineage. And I don't, I don't know specifically. I think it'd probably be a good question to figure out. I don't know if there's a lot of literature on Jesse when it comes down to it, right? He's not a very talked about guy. And so it is interesting that Isaiah is going to focus on Jesse rather than David uh, or rather than some other character, right? Why not Boaz? Why not, why not Obed, right? Why does, he, why does he stick with Jesse? Um, I don't have the catalog to be able to answer that question. We probably need to get a third party on this call. Uh, you know, like Paul Robbie or Tom Egger, you know, somebody that really knows their Old Testament stuff to give us some insight about who uh, the significance of Jesse. Uh, I'm just going to stick with the fact that he's David's dad, right? And you always try to go to a higher authority. Uh, the one that was the the fruit of Jesse's loins or the, you know, the fruit of uh, uh, Jesse's loins was David. And you're always going to go to the bigger guy, I guess, in that situation. And maybe Isaiah has a little bit more history with Jesse's family. I don't know. Can I, I'll, let me, let me jump in there briefly just for a thought. And again, I'm, I'm no Tom Egger or Paul Robbie, but the, in, in my mind, when I think of what we know of Jesse scripturally, the text that comes to mind, I think it's first Samuel 16, which is right before everybody knows first Samuel 17, David and Goliath. First Samuel 16 is where David's anointed. And so Samuel goes to the house of Jesse and he basically lines up his sons for Samuel to anoint one of them as king. And Samuel, of course, thinks that the oldest 
he's going to be the one. The Lord says, no, the Lord looks on the heart, not on outward appearances. Right. And, and he goes through the lineup. And, and in fact, nobody's there because David's out in the field shepherding the flock. And they have to they have to go get him and bring him in from the fields for him to be anointed. All all of that is to say, I I, I wonder. And again, it's this. I'm, I'm not sure, but I wonder if if maybe using Jesse here harkens back to that, which I think connects with some of the the images that come up in the latter half of this text, six through ten, particularly this matter of the little child leading them and the Lord doing all these strange looking things. I know we'll talk more about that when we get there, but that taking it back to Jesse instead of David brings back those, uh, this maybe sounds a bit cliche, but those humble roots from which David comes. This isn't the, the great might of Assyria and, and Sennacherib and even David's own might. You know I mean? The, the account of him slaying Goliath and, and, you know, he's killed his 10,000. Saul only had his thousands. That's not what's in focus here, but it's that, that humility, that the Lord looking on the heart, the connection with the spirit, as you said, that's what Isaiah is calling to mind, maybe by mentioning Jesse instead of David. Yeah, I think that's a great conclusion. I think that's a great leap too, right? That reminding everybody that David isn't, uh, you know, of royal lineage when it comes down to it because of the might of men. David's of royal lineage because of the will of God, right? Working through these divorced, or not divorced, but these widowed women in Ruth's age, right? And a foreign woman at that in Ruth, right? Not an Israelite woman. And the circumstance to bring about the birth of Obed and then Jesse, right? How, you know, talk about cosmic turbulence. This is just cosmic silliness that God is ordaining all these things to bring about uh, David, who, like you're pointing out, is just some ruddy punk, uh, you know, youngest child of a bunch of better, bigger, stronger men that were that would be more naturally inclined to be king uh but what we learn you know especially during these times right uh, advent and the coming christmas we learn that god always uh, chooses what is low and unesteemed to bring to shame all the things that are high and esteemed right he brings uh you you know brings brings things that aren't even around to shame the things that are around so i think you're probably right on that yeah. So, so I, and I kind of jumped in there. We were talking about the shoot from the stump of Jesse, the branch from his roots. Uh, keep, keep going. I don't know where, I don't exactly know where you left off, but give it, give us more there on what Isaiah is doing with this picture in verse one. Yeah. So I think this picture, like you are saying, the image of the stump is a juxtaposition to everything that God has been promising to do up until this point with regards to the people of Israel, right? So we have, we've had a few other messianic prophetic visions, right, of a Davidic ruler or a Messianic ruler. But these visions have been a little bit ambiguous as to their connection to the people, right? Uh, we obviously know the Emmanuel prophecy, which has come comes up prior to this, uh, the Emmanuel prophecy in chapter 7, verse 10. And we have this other Messianic child, Davidic king uh, passage in chapter 9, right, where we have the, for unto us a child is born, the government shall be upon his shoulders. He's obviously going to come come from the Zebulun and the Naphtali region, right? Jordan and the Galilee area. So there's obviously some sort of a connection to the people of Israel and this region. Uh, but exactly what the connection is, uh, well, we have the throne of David, obviously. But still, even then, you know, it's a little bit ambiguous uh, as to how all this is going to play out. But now in, in chapter 11, this righteous branch from Jesse gives a little bit more meat. And exactly uh, what God is going to be doing with this, it has a lot more connection, like you were already pointing out about the Davidic 
uh, anointing, just simply to the anointing of the kings of Israel as they have been anointed in the past, not simply with oil, which is also important, but with the spirit, right, with the spirit of God, which is the next another major component of this. So God is going to cause new growth out of this stump, right? Uh, uh, and, and I always, I find this a really interesting image because, uh, you know, I'm always annoyed when I cut down a tree and then it starts growing out the sides of it, right? Like, uh, you know, if you're an inexperienced lumberjack, you cut down a tree and you expect it to die, right? You expect because you've cut off everything that's up there that it's just going to be dead now. But if you give it a couple of years, you're going to go back and you're going to find it's even worse, right? It's not just one trunk that you've cut down and you expect there not to be anything else. It's like 15 other shoots, Right, that jump out of this thing and obscure the view and make more leaf mess and all that sort of stuff. Right, uh, so the image of a shoot jumping out of this stump is almost, in a way, an annoyance to all these other nations. Right, uh, they thought they thought maybe that Israel was going to be just like every other nation. Right, God's wiping everybody out. Look, He doesn't even spare Israel either, which would harken back to the issues. Uh, in the days of the Sinai, when Moses is pleading with God not to destroy Israel, because then what will the nation say, right? Well, what, what is everybody going to say about the fact that you carried Israel through Egypt for 432 years, and now you're just going to wipe them out after a week, right? What is everybody going to say about this? Uh, and so now you have this shoot that's, that's jumping out here, which is just a revelation to all the nations that, that Israel isn't dead. Right, that the God of Israel is faithful, that what was above the surface might have been sick, but what's under the surface, the root of the people, isn't in the power and the prestige of earthly kingdoms, but in the will and the force of God, right? He's the one that always gives the growth. And so now you have this shoot that's going to jump out, which is going to be a sign and a signal to all the nations that Israel is not forsaken by their God, that now they are alive, that now they have hope, right? That now they have a future. And there's other markers, right, that are going to signal this uh, this change and this new life that God is going to bring about. Most notably, I think, and this is very intentional by Isaiah's part and by God's part, is to notice in, in verse 2 that the Spirit of the Lord is going to be upon this shoot, right? So this really personifies this uh, shoot, right? A br this branch that's going to come out of Jesse, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. You immediately get a personification, which uh, makes and forces us to ask questions like, who is this going to be? And this isn't obviously a branch. What is this talking about? Right. And this, uh, but the spirit of God, the spirit of the Lord resting upon whoever this person is, is a major sign of his Christological, I think, but also his uh, monarchical rule, right? This is the way that Kings, were always anointed. Uh, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David, and not surprisingly, the spirit of the Lord was taken from Saul, right, in the very next verses. Uh, and so you have the anointing of the spirit uh, and uh, all, these all this image of royalty and monarchy and Davidic line and kingliness that come rushing in, you know, to our images here or our minds uh, when we're thinking about this uh, this note in verse two. Did you have to say, did you want to say something about that? No, I think the, that's the next place to go is to the spirit of the Lord that rests upon this shoot from the stump of Jesse. We'll pick that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to sharper iron here on KFUO. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, December 7th. We're studying Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. We've got Pastor Sam Belt with us. He serves at St. John Lutheran Church in Oskaloosa, Iowa. Pastor Belt's prior to the break, we left off with the Spirit of the Lord, as the Spirit of the Lord once rushed upon David, so the Spirit of the Lord will even more so come upon this shoot from the stump of Jesse. As you said, this is we're seeing this this shoot. This is picture language. We're talking about a person, a king. The Spirit of the Lord rests on him. What with what purpose? Right. So Isaiah lays it out clearly from this passage about what the Spirit of the Lord is going to do in the life of this person. The Spirit is going to give wisdom and understanding. The Spirit is going to give counsel and might. The Spirit is going to give knowledge and the fear of the Lord, which is an integral part of this because the very next verse tells us, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Now, this, I think, is a little bit of a, of a dig at Saul, right? The, the one-time one king of Israel who was the, the prototype, right? This prototypical king, the king that God God's Spirit rested upon but ultimately, this God withdrew His Spirit, right? Takes His Spirit from from Saul, and then gives him tragically a terrible or terrorizing spirit, depending on how you translate that language in in the Hebrew, right? This terrifying spirit, this traumatic spirit, uh, in place of the Holy Spirit. Um, so this spirit is going to rest, remain on this shoot of Jesse, uh, this uh, figure uh, of the new dynasty, and. The delight of this person is going to be in the fear of the Lord, which simply communicates to us that the Holy Spirit is going to be with this person and this person will be faithful because of the Holy Spirit, which is a perfect thing for us to focus on in our life as Christians and the work of the Holy Spirit, right? What is the work of the Holy Spirit? The work of the Holy Spirit is for us to hear and believe, right? For us to hear and and believe to drive Christ in the present day, right? In this day, it would be to drive the word of the Lord into the heart and into the soul of an individual so that they are faithful and a God-fearing person, right? In the present day, the work of the Holy Spirit is to drive Christ. We see this in the ministry of Jesus Christ himself. We've probably already had, uh, I think maybe you've had the readings on the baptism of Jesus, or maybe that's coming up in another week, right? But the baptism of Jesus is about to happen for us in Advent. We're going to see Right, the Spirit of God descend on Christ. We're going to see the words of God come out of the heavens and anoint all of this entire scene with uh, the Spirit and the Word and the mission of God. And the Spirit then focuses on driving Christ into the world, right, into Israel for the ministration of the gospel and the calling of all to faith, right? His primary job, Jesus's primary job, we're in the three-year lectionary, so we're now in series B. And in Mark, Jesus identifies that his primary job in the power of the Spirit is to preach, right, is to preach. And he executes this in all wisdom, in all knowledge, in all counsel, and in all might. He does this in all wisdom and in all understanding, right? Uh, Christ embodies the fullness of the Spirit in his life and proclaims what the Spirit desires to be proclaimed, which is the Word of God. The Spirit is always interested in driving the Word of God. And that's why, uh, as we were talking about in the break, 
Lutherans are never to be enthusiasts. And a simple explanation for an enthusiast is somebody who looks for the Holy Spirit before or after the proclamation of the word, right? Enthusiasts are simply people who look for the Holy Spirit to work or to come or to do something apart from the ministry of the word, right? But that is never how the scriptures identify the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is always driving the word. It is always working with the word or empowering the proclamation of the word from the creation, right? And on through the ministry of all the prophets and all of the men who ever spoke on behalf of God in the history of God's salvation, the Holy Spirit was always working to drive the proclamation of the gospel, not before the proclamation of the gospel, not after the proclamation of the gospel, not above it and not below it, but always in it, right? That is how the Holy Spirit properly works. And that's why Lutherans are not enthusiasts. We're not looking for small group ministry and the Holy Spirit to jump out of the Bible and really affect somebody's heart apart from the preaching of the word, right? I think Jesus in John, I was just trying to think about this. Jesus, I think it's John chapter five, where Jesus identifies the Pharisees are constantly searching the scriptures, but they have no knowledge of the scriptures because they have not heard of the proclamation of the Christ, right? They haven't heard it actually proclaimed that the scriptures testify about the work person and work of Jesus Christ, right? So they've been looking into the scriptures, but guess what? The Holy Spirit has not been enlightening them in all their Bible studying because they have been failing to hear the proclamation, right? The right proclamation of the word is what God is always driving the spirit to accomplish. And here in our passage, whoever this person is, right, which we now know to be the Christ, that person will be somebody that is so anointed with the Spirit and so faithful that they will have nothing to do other than proclaim the gospel, right? That's almost what is coming out here. In their rule, their central occupation isn't going to be some sort of dictatorial reign or some earthly government establishment. It is going to be the proclamation of the gospel, right? That is what this root of uh, oh, this branch of Jesse's stump is going to be coming to do, and that's signaled by the Spirit's empowerment and anointing here in these first few verses, which have then, then of course, spills out in all sorts of various and absurd-sounding ways in the in the remaining verses that we have here, right? Sure. And, and before we get to, I mean, because I think the really absurd-sounding stuff comes in verses six and following. Before we get there, this shoot from the stump of Jesse, anointed with the Spirit to the uttermost, so that all that he's doing is preaching the gospel, which is where the Spirit is active. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. And then you get this matter of, of judgment, deciding right. disputes, yes. doing it not according to what he sees or hears, but with true righteousness. And, and doing so, here's the connection again to the preaching through his word and very right. violent images with his word, at least when it comes to the wicked. So take us into verses three and four. Right now, and this is really, uh, what's the term now, woke, right? This is a very woke section of Isaiah, right? Because the wokesters are all interested in equity and equality and all this sort of stuff and whatever this is, right? So what we have going on here is that this messianic figure is actually going to be quite woke. Right. But woke in a good, right and honorable sense. Right. A sanctified sense. This guy, whoever this is, is going to come and he's not going to uh, judge things based on what his eye sees. Right. He is going to judge them based on the wisdom and knowledge and insight and integrity of the spirit and the word. Right. This deep and abiding sense of right righteousness. Right. What is right? What is actually right? The world 
it has a lot of variations and a lot of explanation explanations as to what is right. However, the spirit only drives us into one thing that is right, right? Which is faithfulness, the fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And then on the backside of that, the love of the neighbor, right? Those That's the backspin of faith. And so what you have going on here is that natural reciprocation. The one in all faith, the one who comes in spirit proclaiming the gospel will have no choice Right, because of the full indwelling and overflowing nature of the Spirit's work and the faithfulness to the Word, to judge things equitably, right? To judge things according to what God has ordained and not the ways according to the world, right? So this is a truly divine, woke, awakened, enlightened man, whoever this is, who is coming to judge the worlds with righteousness and inequity, right? To judge between the peoples, to make everything level, right? This would be, uh, you know, the uh, if we wanted to shoot to uh, Isaiah, what do we just say? 64? Is that, the, Isaiah, is that the, Isaiah 40, I think, is the... the uh, 40, the, that's the, right, 40, right? So the coming prophetic uh, uh, the coming prophetic work of John the Baptist, right? To level the playing field. This is what is getting ready to happen. And that's really what uh, uh, that's really what Isaiah is getting at here again early, a, pro, a prototype or a progenerate here, uh, uh, image or a statement about the work of not only the mess Messiah, but all things that God is about to accomplish through his ministrations, which is to bring about this flatness, right? To bring the high things low, the low things high, and make all things stand in the same place before God, right? So, and as you already pointed out, Tim, he's going to do this by the ministry of his word, right? Mm-hmm. He's going to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, right? The breath of his lips is going to blow across everything. There you have this really, I think that image is really, really, uh, it's, uh, it's, it, it's rooted in Genesis. I mean, it's hard for me to not see uh, the image of the ruach, right? The breath of God, right? And the word of God active in the midst of creating and or destroying things, right? Uh, the word of God always accomplishes what it sets out to do. In the case here that we have in Isaiah chapter 11, the word of this spirit-filled, messianic, Davidic ruler, uh, Jesse's branch, is going to destroy all things that are not good and right and true. And he is going to bring into existence the things by his judgments that are good and right and true, right? Uh, And then you have this uh, uh, beautiful imagery, again, uh, uh, this imagery of... uh, of adornment, right? Of, of garb is something that, that, that works throughout all the scriptures with regards to St. Paul's, St. Paul's uh, very common rhetoric about the breast, breastplates of righteousness and uh, the helmet of truth and all these sorts of things, right? Uh, here you have that this same uh, Messianic Davidic ruler is going to have righteousness as his belt and faithfulness as a belt, right? The belt of his loins. So right, this this doubling of this uh, Hebrew poetry really is meant to drive forth this image that this man is held up, right? Held together by faithfulness and truthfulness, right? Faithfulness and righteousness are going to be at his center, right? In his middle and holding everything together for him, uh, which is good news, right? That's really good news, right? You want, I mean, we're in the midst of a time we've come through all these elections and we're always wondering what's going to happen. And everybody says, seems to say the same thing. We just want somebody that's going to be right, truthful, right? Faithful. We want something that's like good and right and true, right? Uh, You know, uh, I I just preached a sermon where I pointed out that Advent is the time where we're reminded, thank God, that God doesn't want everything to keep going the way that it's going, right? Advent's the time when we're reminded that God is actually up to something, which is bringing about the end of the world. And it's not like that's not going to happen. It's just that we keep thinking that it's not going to happen, right? Uh, So we have to constantly adjust our thinking in the season of Advent 
to the hopefulness of the fact that this is not actually the way things are supposed to be going according to God's calibration. And we're waiting for the day when he actually cracks the heavens back open and sets all things new. Here, we're waiting for the same thing, right? These Israelites, again, going back to the to touching on the Israelites, whether or not they have tasted the need for such a ruler is one thing, right? What they are about to experience is the fact that they are going to want somebody that is being described here in this in these pages, right? They might not have tasted the bitterness of being carried away into captivity. They might not have tasted the bitterness of unrighteous leadership, even though there were probably many in Israel who had tasted the bitterness of unrighteous leadership. But one way or the other, whether they were extremely faithful Hebrews or whether they were sort of fringe cultural Hebrews, all of them were going to be driven to the point where they are tired Right where they are tired of being destroyed because of people's hatred of their personage. Right, they're they're going to be fed up with the fact of the way things are going, and they're going to be looking for something to change, and they're going to be looking for a messianic figure like this to carry them out of bondage and captivity. Right, so that's all um, an important reminder, not only for us but also you know as we enter into the season. So. For sure. So then this this picture of everything being level, the high being brought low, the low being brought high, Isaiah pictures it here in a slightly different way as the text continues. And the way that things are brought level isn't so much in terms of like mountains and valleys like Isaiah 40, but predators and prey. Uh, maybe is, is the way to look yeah, at it. I no, mean, and it's, a, it's a pretty crazy picture. I, I know particularly in our family where where snakes are not generally that celebrated of animals among us. Uh, the, the images of children playing around cobras are, well, that's just nuts. I know. And again, I have to uh, give credit to the great writers of that blockbuster Ghostbusters. Well, Bill Murray's character actually talks about the chaos that's going to ensue. Dogs and cats living together, pandemonium hysteria. Right. Uh, He gets at the image in that in that picture, which is Isaiah bringing it up here, which is the absurdity of what is going to take place through the ministrations of this messianic figure to bring about the, the this reconciliation of all creation. Right. That's really the image that I see going on here is this reconciliation of all the creation. So we have a few things here. Uh, you know, we are uh, we can often become myopic in thinking about the calamity of sin, right? That sin is not simply a, a human issue. It is a cosmic issue, right? Sin is a cosmic issue. The sin of Adam and Eve was a cosmic sin, right? It disrupted all the cosmos, not simply the destinies of the human creature, right? It definitely did disrupt the destinies of the human creature. It corrupted the nature of the human creature. But what we see here in this image from Isaiah is that the atrocity of sin extends to all the creation and all the cosmos. Now here we get the barnyard image, right? We get the barnyard image uh, with all the animals that are normally uh, trying to devour each other or run away and flee, uh, all living together in harmony, right? And uh, like you brought up, I I don't necessarily think that this is a an image that is uh, isolated from the other images of uh, restoration or reconciliation or uh, equity, right, Uh, that we would normally uh, associate with the leveling of the rough places that are so common to Isaiah 40 and what we're getting ready to hear about the coming of John the Baptist. But here, uh, images of the adder and the lion and the the goat and uh, bears eating straw and grazing and the cobra and all this sort of stuff, right, these images are 
are uh, absurd for Israel to hear about, right? These images aren't necessarily absurd for us to hear about, even though they're absurd. But if you are an Israelite person living in the wilderness of the Sinai, right, living in living in the place of Jerusalem or any of those surrounding regions, right, you're watching out for all these death-dealing things, right? You're not interested in in putting your child at risk anyway, right? And when you're in, uh, you know, seventh century BC Israel, right, you're not looking for any other excuses to die because there are plenty, right? Uh, there's plenty of ways to die in 7th century BC Israel. Uh, so when uh, you hear Isaiah prophesying about adders and cobras and lions and lambs and bears grazing and all this sort of crazy stuff, uh, again, you can be, uh, you can think this is insane talk, right? This is crazy talk. Obviously, God's given us our senses, right? We should be watching out for these things. We shouldn't be trying to put our kids in danger. Well, what he's pointing out, of course, is that this reconciliation that God is going to bestow through the ministry of his Messiah is going to be such that it is going to cosmically realign all things, right? It is going to realign everything, right? The geography is going to be realigned. The relation between all things in the creation are going to be realigned. And and the only way that that can really come about is absurdity, right? Is absurd expressions and abstract statements about the way things are proposed to be, right? This is why so many people have such a hard time with books like Daniel and the Revelation, right? They want to interpret this stuff literally. They want to move past the absurdity and the abstraction to try to get to some sort of concrete footing. But that's why poetry is so beautiful, right? That's why Isaiah is so great, is because it's not actually trying to communicate something tangible. I think it is too, but it is trying to communicate something that is so cosmically absurd that we can't possibly wrap our minds around it and feel in control of it. Uh, and that is a really important part of the scriptures, is that they're telling a story that's so large and absurd in so many cases that it is meant to humble the human reader and the human hearer rather than make us feel in control of the thing, right? We're, we're, we stand in submission uh, to the text of the scripture and to the proclamation of the gospel, right? We stand underneath of it. We don't stand alongside it or above it. We stand in conformity to it, right? And so because of that, we have to obviously come to the conclusion in humility that this is absurd and it's beautiful because it's absurd and I love it because it's absurd because it's proves that it's bigger than me, right? Or at least it reveals that it's beyond my comprehension. It's bigger than something I can fathom, uh, you know, and it, it really is for, in, in this way, Hollywood to point out to us because everything that comes out of Hollywood is absurd, right? We've, we've learned that all the more now, right? We've learned that all the more in our present time. And so it's good that Hollywood latches onto these things to help us point out the, the, the nature of this is is theatrical, right? It is huge, right? It's beyond comprehension, and it's meant for a big screen, right? Uh, it's meant to communicate something that you couldn't possibly communicate in the normal conventions of life, because that's what the scriptures are intending to do, right? They're intending to communicate something that seems beyond the normal conventions of life, because it is, right? When God interacts with his creation to bring about salvation that is beyond the scope of human comprehension and convention, and we have to adjust to that, because that's what God has called us into, right? We haven't created this thing. It's not ours. The scriptures aren't about us. The church isn't about us. The season of Advent isn't about us, right? The themes that we are hearing aren't about us. They communicate God's activity for us, which is a much better place to be, right? When God is working for us, and when we are not the source and the norm of all the things that take place in the cosmos, how much better could it possibly get 
for the human creature to just live in the enriching grace of God, right? To receive his good gifts, to hear about the work that he is doing for us, to listen to the absurdities and the lengths to which he goes to bring about these things for us, right? And then you have it right here in Isaiah's passage, right? Lions and lambs and children and adders. This is crazy talk. And that's exactly right. It is crazy because the gospel makes no sense, right? It makes no sense to human to human wisdom, right? The, we, we seek signs, we seek wisdom, but we, gain, we, we hang on a word from God, right? We hang everything we have on a word and a promise from God, which is absurd. And that's right, it's absurd. There's no other way to explain it. Yeah, you went to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 there, and I think you referenced it earlier in our conversation, the latter part of that chapter, where God brings to nothing the things that are right. in yeah. the gospel. And, and that's what we're seeing happening here, which, as you pointed out there, you know, I mean, we're looking for signs and wisdom, right? Jews seek signs, Greeks seek wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, which is which is a stumbling block to those who do not believe. But for us who do believe, it's the power and the wisdom of God. Or, or to use Isaiah's language here at the end of the text, it's a signal. It's this it's this banner that get, gets lifted up that that people see, and there's the rest. There's I mean, as you were saying, that these Advent themes, this is the rest that we have in the absurdity of what God does for us, something that we never would have thought of later in Isaiah. His his ways are higher and better than ours. Completely different. They seem absurd. And yet through that, there's the signal, the sign of our salvation. We've, we've got about six minutes here, Pastor Belts, And I'd like you to take us into the imagery of that last verse. And also then make sure we answer the question because you, you've said it several times. You know, this figure, this messianic Davidic king, whoever he is, make sure we know who he is. Right. Yeah. So in, in these closing verses, right, the signal and the sign of the people's. Uh, I think this connects really closely to uh, the John 3 passage where Jesus identifies to Nicodemus about exactly what the sign and signal of faith is going to be, right? So we'll answer the question, who is this Davidic messianic figure? It is the person and work of Jesus. It is Jesus Christ himself, right? We could probably do some digging to figure out a more closer prophetic fulfillment of this to the people of Israel, right? You could you could work towards Ezra Nehemiah or something like that, you know, but none of those satisfy Finally, the person of Jesus is the satisfying answer to this question. Who is this branch of Jesse, right? It is the person of Jesus. And Jesus himself in John chapter 3, which I think is a highly overlooked passage, right? We always move to John three sixteen, which is certainly a beautiful passage. But the earlier statement where Jesus identifies that his crucifixion is going to be the litmus test of faith, right? That when, when you look upon the Christ on the cross and believe in him, this is where faith is actually situated, right? Is putting your trust in a crucified man, right? Uh, like the thief on the cross in Matthew, right? It makes no sense why a, one crucified guy should look at another crucified guy and ask that other crucified guy to go to your kingdom, right? That makes no sense. But that is what the eyes of faith do, what the heart of faith does. It looks beyond the material, right? It looks beyond what is there, and it grasps a hold of the deep truth. The signal and the sign of the peoples here, right, the thing that is going to draw all people in the days of, uh, you know, Isaiah, uh, we don't know if there's a closer reference to that. What we do know is that finally this is the way that the cross is talked about, right? That the crucifix is a very important symbol for us as Christians, right? It should be, I think, a standardized symbol in all churches, 
right? And now I know, oh, this is controversial. Lutherans are empty cross people. This is really a Reformed teaching. This is not a Lutheran teaching, right? Empty crosses don't make any sense, right? They don't make any sense. They are a sign of death. Uh, we should put an open tomb upon our altars, right? If we if we really wanted to be a resurrection people, right? Not Not an empty cross, right? You wouldn't have a manger if it's empty unless it's the time of Advent, which is appropriate, right? But you have it full at the time of Christmas, which is when you fill up the manger. Right? You have a cross that's full of a dead body. And that is actually biblically accurate according to Jesus because it is the crucifix, it is the crucifixion, that is the time where faith is you know, tested. Right? Can we believe that this is the guy? Is this the guy that we put our faith into? Well, Jesus himself says that that is going to be the test. Right? When the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. That's what he says in John chapter three. And you have that here, right? This signal, this sign, I think is, I think you can make the connection. And I think it's right to make the connection to the crucifixion for us in the present day. Now, when we do this, when we do this, we also have to be willing to give an answer to the to properly to what the question of the crucifixion is, right? And there are many ways to answer the question of why Jesus got crucified, but there's one that is biblically more accurate than many others. And we do have to be well-equipped to answer that question, which a lot of people aren't well-equipped to answer the question. What's this Jesus? Why was he crucified? Why is this the litmus test of faith? You know, all these sorts of things need to be answered by our people, not just our pastor as well, which means the preacher of our pastors needs to aim at explaining and proclaiming why it is that Jesus got crucified, all the ins and outs of it, because there are a lot of details there that often get overlooked. A lot of the conversation of the narrative of the biblical of the of the gospels uh, gets overlooked. Right, the preaching of the apostles can often be overlooked as we talk about the crucifixion and what this sign and signal are for all nations. Right, and the the desire. Right, the desire. Of, of this is that God will make make this sign and signal to be a resting place, right? His resting place shall be glorious, right? We want all nations to inquire, but also rest here, right? We want God's resting place to be glorious, which could give us a lot of insight into the way we should construct and adorn our churches, right? That the resting place of God should be a glorious place. But it also, it also shows us, again, that the resting place, if we take it as of the cross, which seems to be the place that uh, the Gospels draw us to as the glorious place, right? Remember us when you come into our glory, or your glory is the request of, uh, of the disciples, right? Of uh, Andrew and uh, uh, Peter, or uh, no, 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 James and John, right? They want to be uh, next to Jesus when he comes into his glory, and Jesus identifies that they, they don't know what they're asking, because the resting place is glorious in the eyes of faith, right? It is hidden from the eyes of the world because they have not been enlightened by the Holy Spirit to see and to hold on to the beautiful thing that actually takes place in the cross, which is life, right? The life-giving tree, so. Pastor Sam Belts is the pastor at St. John Lutheran Church in Oskaloosa, Iowa, helping us this morning with Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Pastor Belts, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks, Sam. The signal of the cross stands before our eyes. The root of Jesse has borne forth a shoot. It is Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead for you and for me. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.